PANJ Radio, and we're in the green room. It's uh, Tuesday at 5 o'clock, and we're live. And um, we have uh, a really great guest today, and um, I'm going to find out all about all these movies that were made. And Lawrence Schriller, hi Lawrence. Glad to be here, thank you very much. Oh, it's great to have you here. And Rodney Warner. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good. It's a great day. I thought I just... You, you're doing a, a benefit coming up? Yeah, September 8th. We'll have to do a show about that sometime. Yeah, it's a benefit for? Uh, cancer Support Community Greater Philadelphia Programs for Kids and Teens. Okay, sounds cool. Yeah. Very nice. It'll be great fun. Come on down. <laughs> <laughs> See, who Cocktails, that? food... Information, fun, yeah. yeah, all to help kids. Who is who is the game show host that said, "Come on down"? Oh, it was, uh, it was the Price is Right. The Price is he, Right. It was his uh, his announcer, friend. right? Yeah, Bob Bob Barker didn't. Yeah, say no, it. he didn't say it, but somebody else did. <laughs> it was his uh, it was the in house announcer. What a right. great gig that must have been. <laughs> huh? Being the announcer on the Price is Right. Shirley these, Jones, come on down. All these strange-looking people. I know, costumes. but he goes crazy. Shirley Jones, yeah. like, jumps out of a chair and like, <laughs> runs, sprints down to the stage. Yeah, yeah. So, speak. you're involved with so many of these. Yeah, we got a couple races. things going on. It's uh, I'm kind of spreading myself thin. I'm also working on another um, fundraiser for the organization down in Philly, which is actually a beer-tasting event, and that's uh-huh. going to be in October. Okay. So that'll be a nice afternoon of adult beverages. Uh huh. So so I'm trying to recruit uh, people to donate beer for this event. <laughs> and if you own a brewery in Brooklyn or a, a little whiskey place somewhere, so it's uh, we're actually starting to hit up distributors, right? Because they handle all kinds of beer, but we'll see. But it'll be a fun event. Yeah. Just for for beer lovers. Yeah. And the people who love them. True. We, we, lots of people loving the beer. <laughs> lots of people. Right, Rob? Rob's our uh, engineer today, hanging in there. But he doesn't have a microphone, so... Uh, well, that's all right. He's, he's with us in spirit. <laughs> he's with us in spirit. But uh, He's going to walk over, try to find a mic, <laughs> plug it in without it making a, a pop sound. Right, 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 right. right. All, all those technical things it's, that... Uh, it's worth a try. He's got a little hey, guys. Uh, hey, Rob, come on down. Oh, he's got, he's got a little I'm in the back room here. He's got a little shotgun mic there. That <laughs> yep, that's, that's true. That's true. Is, right. Is that thing loaded? It's loaded. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway... So, Lawrence, yes. how, were you from Brooklyn? So I was born in Brooklyn at number 10 Argyle, about a couple blocks from Prospect Park. I used and to live in Prospect they, Park. Yeah, my father ran a store in Times Square called the Vega Stores in the 40s, uh-huh. which was kind of the forerunner of appliances, sporting goods, and cameras. 
And there used to be a customer that would come in all the time, talk to my dad. And my dad was the manager of the store. And one day, the guy walked in and said, uh, I'm going to open up a store like this in San Diego, California. Uh, would you like to come out and run the store for me? And my dad said, well, tell me a little more about it. You know, My dad uh, he used to put my brother and I my mother, my mother was the bookkeeper, and they put us in the movie theater across the street, and we'd watch a double bill, and uh, I remember how many times did I watch... Single screen. Yeah, right. How many times <laughs> did I watch Jekyll and Hyde or Frankenstein <laughs> at the matinees? Tom Hicks. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so the short and long is my father went out there first, and... Uh, this is a very interesting story because it has a, something to do with me. And the guy's name was Saul Price. And what he did is he opened up what was called the Price Clubs, which was the first big Heard discount. of them, yeah, yeah, sure. And they were the forerunner for Costco. Mm -hmm. And Saul mm -hmm. Price and his brother had them all through California. So my dad worked a while and six months, and then he said to my mother, well, come on out. And, uh, you know, like my father, we went, came out on the train I was seven years old, I think, and uh, I was born in 36, so this is 42, 43. And uh, it was just beautiful going across the country. I, I really didn't know what I was seeing, but the sky, the mountains, uh -huh. you know, in those days... Uh, you had the horse and buggy, right? Uh, you know, it was just about, <laughs> no, but it was still... And then all of a sudden, you know, we'd stop about every maybe day or something for maybe three hours. Mm -hmm. It was 10 minutes. And then all of a sudden on the fourth day, we, we are coming down the coast of California, my mother tells me, the beautiful water out there and everything. Mm -hmm. I'd only seen Coney Island with 10,000 <laughs> people running around, you know, and that wasn't water, you know what I'm saying? That was Coney Island. Coney Island, Brighton <laughs> so, Beach. So, you know, now we see the water, but... As we got closer and closer to some place, it started to get darker and darker and darker and darker. And I started to get scared as a seven-year-old kid. My brother was two years younger than me. He was five. And it started to get almost pitch black. And I started crying and screaming. And my brother started crying. And my mother started. And then all of a sudden, the train came to a stop. And, and it was black. And, you know, we were, there were lights inside the car, don't get me wrong. And, and then we got out, and there was my father there, and, you know, the hugs and kisses. And, and what I didn't realize, it was the first time I'd ever seen life under camouflage. Because San Diego, you see, was the port of debarkation mm -hmm. for the Navy. And all along that trailer track was General Dynamics and Convair and all these companies that were making munitions and tanks and this and that. And San Diego was basically, that part of San Diego was under camouflage. Hmm. And of course, I had no comprehension of what camouflage was. And finally, we got in the car and drove out to a home that we lived in in Chula Vista for a while uh, before my father went into business for himself. But that was me coming to the West Coast. Mm -hmm. My father opened a a Cameron Sporting Goods and Appliance Store in Pacific Beach, California, hmm. not far from La Jolla. 
and we lived on a street called Everett Street, and and you know, and he brought his mother out, and then my mother's father came out, and everybody from Brooklyn, huh? yeah, all, all from the east. And then I remember really interesting things. My mother would trade silverware for butter, and I would I would say to my mother, I was maybe not eight years old now. You know, why are you trading with these sailors, and you're giving away? grandma's silverware hmm. she said well we need butter to cook you know it was rations and so you know as a young kid you start to understand little by little the struggle that your parents have hmm. without really being in their mind not really knowing how hmm. they but the short and long of it is you know the war uh, eventually faded away uh, and uh, uh, my father was basically a salesman and when five years later when I was uh, bar mitzvahed uh, he gave me a camera he actually gave me an East German camera called an Exacta and in those days the uh, FM radio at the end of the band is where the police had their signals you see now they have all their own you know for, 60, 70 years, but in those days they had uh, the band. So I would hear about these automobile accidents or I'd hear other things and I'd get on my bicycle and I'd ride my bicycle to the automobile accidents. And by the time I got there, you know, the cars had been towed away. If somebody was hurt, the ambulance had taken them away. The police were no longer there. What was left? What was left was skid marks. Mm. And I didn't realize that photographing the skid marks, I was learning about light. Because a skid mark looks different if it's an overcast day, if it's a sunny day, if it's backlit, sidelit, mm. if it's at night and it's got stream, street lights. They didn't have vapor lights in those days. And subconsciously, or if that's the right word, I was learning about lighting. And finally, when I was about... 14 years old, a couple years later, my father said, well, if you can earn enough money with the camera <laughs> and you can earn enough to pay for half the car, I'll pay for the other half. <laughs> and the car was a Ford, which cost $6,000. And the short and long of it is I would take those pictures of skid marks and I'd sell them to insurance companies. <laughs> because insurance companies can tell the speed of a car, who hit whom, and they were the most, and I became the go-to <laughs> photographer. You know, you said that, I was thinking like like personal injury attorneys would, yeah. would be interested. Right, okay. yeah, yeah. So the short and long of it is I learned economics very, very early on. You know, I learned economics through my father, uh, and, uh, and I started taking pictures, in high school, uh, I graduated and went to La Jolla High School, and they had what they called the La Jolla Playhouse, Dorothy McGuire, Gregory Peck, all these famous actors. Betty Davis would come down. So I started to shoot celebrities and sports. Gene Littler was the golfer. Archie Powell was the uh, boxer. And Mo Conley was the tennis player. And I started to take the pictures and enter 
Now, the, uh, excuse me. Yeah. This was old what, when you were 14 and 15? 14, yeah. 14 years wow. old. Wow. And, and, and I won the Graflex Awards, the high school division, which that was the camera you see, you know, that crown graphic, speed graphic in all the old <laughs> movies. And uh, I won second, third, fourth, fifth, and ninth. And my father was, I get a little emotional, very, very smart. He said, you know, Forget about the trophies. Give them some experience. So they sent me to New York to work as an assistant to a very, very fine photographer who shortly thereafter won the Pulitzer uh, for Acme News Service. And the assignment that he had when I arrived, I was staying at my aunt's house, believe it or not, was the death march from Union Square to Knickerbocker Village of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg on the night of the Sabbath that they were to be executed. Wow. And even though I was an assistant handing him the pictures, I had, you know, graduated from the exacta to a Roloflex, and I started <laughs> to take pictures of the crowd. And then when we went in to have all the film developed to go on the wire service in those mm -hmm. days, finally, sheepishly, like 2 o'clock in the morning, I said to the guy, you know, could you develop my role of film? And because everything had already gone out, you know, and Andy Lopez, the photographer, made some incredible pictures. And comes out of the dark room, and he says, you know what we got here? What, 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 what? Andy runs over. Look, here's this woman crying, crying, crying. And look, she's got that old European watch. And what does it say? Six minutes to seven. The exact moment Julius Rosenberg was executed. <laughs> well, you know, that was my first picture. That so did you get wow. paid for that picture? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so were you paid by the hour or paid by the picture? I wasn't paid by well, Maybe you weren't paid at all. <laughs> no. I was, I was, you were paid an experience. They, they gave me something. but It, it was an in internship back before exactly there were internships. Right, right. But there was good and bad out of that. Number one, you know, I realized that you can take pictures and somebody else decides whether it's a good or bad picture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The eye of the beholder. Huh? Right. That's the first thing. And the other thing that I learned, and I don't realize, and I'm not saying I knew I was learning it at that time. You know, I'm 81 years old now, sure. so I look back and I say, <laughs> you know, I learned this. But I learned also that, in, in essence, the camera's like a sponge. A journalistic camera. Now, yes, you have to understand lighting. Yes, you have to maybe understand a little bit about composition. Six inches this way, two inches higher, three inches that way. Mm -hmm. You know. But it basically, the camera's a sponge. So I became, at a very young age, a photojournalist. And I got a four-year scholarship from the L.A. Examiner for college at a school wonderful school called Pepperdine, which at that time only had 800 students. Now it's got 17,000 or whatever. Uh, and then I made the biggest mistake for a couple of years. And that was, I was sending ideas to magazines all over the world. Der Stern in Germany and Parry Match in France and, you know, in South Africa, every place with my ideas because I was living in Los Angeles, you know, Hollywood. 
And in all these letters, I kept starting getting all these rejections, rejections, rejections. And in the bathroom, because I was in college and I was living off campus, and in the bathroom I used to pin up all the rejection letters <laughs> on the wall, and I'd sit there on the toilet, and I'd look at them and I'd say, what's wrong? These ideas are good. They're better than what's in the magazine. And after over a year, I realized what was wrong. As I was telling somebody, oh, I'm 19 years old, and blah, blah, blah. Nobody wants to hire an 18, a 19, or a 20-year-old photographer. I, the minute I took my age out of the new submissions, oh, wow. I started getting assignments from the London Sunday <laughs> Times magazine. I mean, you know, you name it. Wow. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was, you see? And therefore, I also learned, looking back in life, you have to always look at what you do from the other person's point of view. You know, whether you're a scientist, you know, or giving your results of years of research, or whether you're a teacher trying to explain something, whatever, you always have to look at it a little bit from the other side. You've got to get the perspective of the, of the other person. And I learned very early that depending upon what street corner you were standing on, everybody had a different view of the automobile <laughs> accident. <laughs> you know? Sure. So uh, I started to take pictures and there's lots of war stories. I shot my first playmate in the basement of President Tyner's home. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's lots of war stories. Tell me of a young man that doesn't shoot nudes or semi-nudes in those days, you know. <laughs> it's the day of Peter Golland and Vargas and all of that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I assume in addition to taking the photos, you're also developing them. Or, or does somebody... No, in those days them? I was developing myself, yeah. Right. Until... 1959. Okay. But I was developing. I had a dark room in President Tyner's house. And uh, I was shooting mostly 4 by 5 and a little bit on the Rolleiflex. And even at college, they used to say, you know, you're going over to Larry's layout room, and you know, which was the basement. But the short and long is I was lucky enough to graduate. Wonderful school. That even though I was Jewish and it was... Um, basically a, a Catholic school, I, I learned a lot, you know, about relationships with other groups of people, uh, minorities, because Pepperdine was opened, you know, kind of like, in a way, the Mormon church, you know, with apostles mm -hmm. all over the place, and bringing people in, and there's nothing wrong if you want to spread your word, if you really believe in it. You know? Sure. So I, I learned a lot, uh, not realizing what I was learning. Mm -hmm. And when I got out of college, I opened up a little studio on Sunset Boulevard and blew all the money that I had saved taking pictures through college. Because you see, all this money I was making taking pictures because I had a scholarship, room and board, four years. Mm -hmm. so, so up until this point... What was your What was your favorite thing to shoot? What, what, what did What did What really excited you? I mean, other than beautiful half naked women. But well, I mean, I mean, number what, one, that I mean, was that was pretty boring because I, <laughs> I, I would see I would see Peter Gowland knew how to do it better. Uh, Mario Caselli knew how to do it better. Uh, I mean, there were photographers. I'd open up the magazines and I'd say, "Wow, they really understand what to do." That's just a new so, kid so, on the so, block. So you went from So you went from skid marks to to <laughs> photographing to, anything. anything. Right. 
baton swirlers, surfers. Was there was there you know any particular yeah. subject or issue that you like really yeah. you know lit your fire? It's like this is awesome. Oh. Today I'm going yep. to yep. What? So yeah. Tennis. What was that? Tennis. Tennis. So La Jolla Beach and Tennis Club, where you, all the Davis Cup players came. You know, it's, it's Mo funny. Conley. It's see? funny you mentioned that place. Yeah. Because my wife and I stayed there on vacation. Oh, you did. Like in the late well, 80s. then you know what I'm talking about. I, I was there. Yeah, right. So you know, <laughs> I know exactly. So what you're in, in the early fifties, mm-hmm. mid fifties, Perry T. Jones was in L.A. running the Southern California Tennis Association, and Bill Kellogg ran tennis out of the Beach Tennis Club, and these were the most powerhouse. So. I was shooting tennis, and I, I, through my father being a salesman, mm-hmm. you know, behind the counter, mm-hmm. taught me one thing. Uh, even if the customer's totally wrong, he's never wrong in this store, because if he's wrong in this store, he's not going to come back and buy again. So I kind of learned with my father, even though I made a lot of mistakes in my life, kind of how to ingratiate myself, you mm-hmm. see, how to sell myself. Uh, when to become the fly on the wall, when to show them a little better businessman than the other photographer. <laughs> so the short and long of it is I, I Tony Trabert and Vic Satius and, and uh, Sedgman from Australia and Hedge, you know, uh, Harry Hopman and all these great tennis players. So I started traveling to Australia. That was my first long trips mm-hmm. out of California. So tennis was, and I was shooting for International Tennis Magazine and I became, you know, kind of, Really kind of interesting. Barbara Bright, a great tennis player who was runner-up at Wimbledon, and she, Darlene Hart's doubles partner and everything. She and I got engaged at a young age, and then uh, when my... Uh, I didn't realize her family was German. And finally, when I went to, over to meet her father and mother, after we were engaged, kind of stupid... Uh, <laughs> Uh, at Bright Paint Company, he looked at me and realized I was Jewish, and that was the last I ever saw of his daughter. Is that right? Yeah, really? I believe that. So, but, so what was it yeah. about? What was it about tennis? What well, was it? The action? Was I'll it tell you the what people? It was. You know, what was, was it? What was about tennis was very interesting. Tennis was a sport, like many other sports, that if you were really going to be a good photographer, you had to have anticipation mm-hmm. from the time you see it to the time your finger moves, to the time you hit the shutter and the focal plane shutter moves on the speed graphic and you got a 10-inch lens, you know, and you have to figure composition. Where is that player going to be in one-tenth of a second? Where is the ball going to be? Is he going this way or is he going that way? Now, you don't, you don't bat 100, you know, nobody, not even <laughs> Babe Ruth, you know. So, but I really understood composition because in college... My father had recommended I take accounting, which I did, and I took drafting. So I understood about infinity, I understood out of drafting, composition. And I had to study architectural pictures and things like Hmm. that. So I was very, very widely published and very, very successful as a tennis photographer. Uh, And then opening the studio in Hollywood, well... You know, then now I didn't have my age in the letters, and Perry Match was saying, "All right, shoot Liz Taylor, you know, Academy Awards." Oh yeah, go out and shoot Marilyn Monroe with Yves Montand. This is a French magazine, Perry Match. You know, he's the new Maurice Chevalier, 
and he's doing a movie with Marilyn Monroe. Well, this is 1960. And, you know, Marilyn was like just another assignment to me. Mm. You know, I mean, really, there were so many Hollywood starlets, you know. I didn't understand that she had been run over by so many trucks in her life. <laughs> right, but the right. short and long of it is, to give you an example, prior to that, Perry Match, which was my biggest client at that time, uh, had given me the assignment to shoot Nixon, the next president of the United States. <laughs> no, they were totally sure. He's going to win the election. Larry, <laughs> you're just extraordinary what you've done. You've got Nixon, and you're going to be the pool of photographer. That means your pictures are going to be developed, and then they'll be supplied to all the European magazines. And, you know, they, they gave me a nice piece of change sure. by those standards. And, you know, in, in, in November of 59, I made this iconic picture of Nixon at the Ambassador Hotel, with his wife Pat next to him with the tear dropping from her eye, which won Picture of the Year Award and everything. This was before I met Marilyn Monroe. That's so, so, so was, was Nixon the governor or a congressman at the time? Do you a vice president. Him? He was, was vice, vice president. president. Uh, right. yes. and, and, but this is a very interesting thing because in that assignment, I shot probably 400 rolls of film. 36 exposures to a roll of film. Right. 400 rolls of film. You can do the math. To this day, I have never looked at anything except the six pictures that the magazine had picked because you don't have the time. Yeah. You're going from one assignment to another. You're parachuting in. You're spending two, three, four days. With Nixon, it was weeks. You know, Palm Desert, this, that, everything else. But, you just followed them around wherever... Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, Nixon wasn't like the Kennedys. Eventually, I got very close to the Kennedys. But, you know, Nixon was a very, very smart politician, you know. Uh, you know, television is what destroyed him. I mean, if you listen to the Nixon-Kennedy debates on radio, Nixon right. just won, mm -hmm. you know, no question about it. Uh, and But on television, you know, uh, he didn't believe in makeup. Well, <laughs> it's, it's kind of hard to compete with Jack Kennedy. Yeah. Well, television. can I tell you something? It wasn't. It was very hard to compete with Jack Kennedy's father. Let's, <laughs> let's be blunt about it. Him too. <laughs> no, Joseph Kennedy. He had the money. Well, it's not only that, but the older son, which was killed in the war, was the father was grooming him to be president of the United States, and uh, you know he had died in in a plane. Mm -hmm. You know he was a bomber, and Jack almost lost his life. You know in PT one right, 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 right. and. He came back, and, you know, the father is very, very interesting. The father hired an advertising agency to run Jack Kennedy's senatorial races in 58. <laughs> and, the, you know, the money was not spared. And I have to tell you, and I'll jump ahead, okay? Last year, or a little bit before that, 2016 because of my relationship with Bobby Kennedy and many other things and years later, uh, I was selected to do the photographic exhibition for the centennial of JFK's 100th birthday at the Smithsonian wow. and for it to tour all over the country. I was selected to produce the big show for Caroline Kennedy with Mabel Staples and everybody, you know, everybody. <laughs> and the, the, the short and long... Of, of, of that, you know, to, to, to give you an, an idea that 
the responsibility and the obligations, you know, we, we're dealing with fake news nowadays, even in an exhibition at the Smithsonian, to make sure history is preserved the right way and presented the right way. Now, of course, every historian has its own view on what took place. You know, nobody knows really what took place in Gettysburg, at least the guys that are writing about it now. Hmm. But the short and long of it is, uh, throughout all these years, I came to understand photography very, very well. I was more interested in financial rewards than being in the Museum of Modern Art. Okay? <laughs> and some of my contemporaries are just incredible artists, you know? Unbelievable. So the short and long is I started working for Perry Match and then met Marilyn. Are we about ready to go into a yeah. break? We're going to go into a little break. Then we'll talk about Marilyn after. Yes. Our I, telephone I number is not too much boring. 609, no, no. 460-4673 if anybody's interested and wants to give a ball. We'll be right back. And uh, we're just going to be a couple minutes off. So thanks. of New Hope and Lambertville and be part of the fun. Shop in the area's most unique stores from antiques to toys to apparel and you're sure to find a one-of-a-kind treasure. Make a reservation at one of Lambertville or New Hope's variety of dining options for dinner, wine, beer, or an artisan cocktail. Indoors or out, grab an ice cream cone to enjoy by the river for the first Friday fireworks. Create memories that will last a lifetime at the River Towns of New Hope and Lambertville where everyone is welcome. Visit DelawareRiverTowns.com. Hey, I'm Deirdre Anderson with Delish Catering. And I'm Laura Mangone from Chambers Walk Cafe and Catering. And we'd like you to join us on Food for Thought Where. What do we talk about, Laura? We talk about restaurants. We talk about pet recipes. Peeves, pet food. peeves. Bitchy hostesses. <laughs> All sorts of food-related items. All sorts of Tune food in. stuff. And sometimes not so much food stuff. We go off on segues, but we have a lot of fun, don't we? Absolutely. So join us on Food for Thought. PANJRadio.com, 1 o'clock weekdays. of New Hope and Lambertville and be part of the fun. Shop in the area's most unique stores from antiques to toys to apparel and you're sure to find a one-of-a-kind treasure. Make a reservation at one of Lambertville or New Hope's variety of dining options for dinner, wine, beer, or an artisan cocktail. Indoors or out, grab an ice cream cone to enjoy by the river for the first Friday fireworks. Create memories that will last a lifetime at the River Towns of New Hope and Lambertville where everyone is welcome. Visit DelawareRiverTowns.com. Okay, we are back with Lawrence Schriller, 
It's amazing the stuff that we're hearing here today. Well, we well, are truly in in the presence of. Well, no, I'm just I'm a working guy that gets up every morning and looks at the bank balances. You know, to make sure I got enough let's, money. Let's you are you're a witness to history. Yeah, well, I got I got five kids and five grandchildren that are going through college. Okay, so the short and long of it is. I get this assignment to photograph Yves Montan in Maryland for Perry Match uh, 1960 after Nixon. And I go out there as I wrote in a big Vanity article, Vanity, uh, Vanity Fair magazine article mm-hmm. a number of years ago. The, the guy, PR guy takes me out to the set and this and that and I hear music and Marilyn's walking up the steps to the dressing room and he says, oh stop Marilyn, I, Larry Schiller is here from Look Magazine. And Marilyn, like, swings around, not because it's Larry Schiller, but because of Look Magazine. You understand? <laughs> hmm. And she puts out her hand and she says, Hi, I'm Marilyn Monroe. And I didn't know what to say. <laughs> so I looked up with her and I said, Oh, I'm the big bad wolf. <laughs> and, 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 and she looked at me and she says, Well, you don't look... That bad now, but I'm sure when you get older, you're going to be really bad. <laughs> so that was my first interchange with Marilyn. And what you don't realize is that you've, you have set, in essence, a level of communication. Mm-hmm. You see, just out right, of spontaneity. Right, 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 okay? right, sure. So she goes in the dressing room and she sits down there in front of the mirror. And I'm still sheepishly, you know. I'd already photographed Betty Davis and Lee Remick. I'd already photographed, you know, um, uh, Simon Cigare. You would have uh, photos of Abraham Lincoln if it was around then. Yeah, so (laughs) so I start photographing Marilyn in the mirror, and she sees me in the mirror. Obviously, if the camera can see her, she can see me. And she says, Larry, you're not going to get a good picture if you're shooting me from that angle. You could go sit in the corner there. And you just wait a few minutes, and you'll get a good picture. So I go over there, and I sit in the corner, and Marilyn kind of turns and looks over her shoulder and gives me a look, and I click one frame. And, of course, you know, it's full page of Perry Match eventually. The point is Marilyn knew more about photography, more about what was right for Marilyn, very much like Streisand years later, who I worked with, she knew what was right for her because she had been trained by a photographer by the name of Andre Didienis. And Didienis, you know, was a Hungarian photographer who lived with her virtually. And he always had a mirror next to his camera, not because he needed it, but he wanted Marilyn to understand what she looked like as he would pose her lighter. Mm-hmm. So those years, she learned a lot, which mm-hmm. you didn't realize, you see? Yes. Sure. And she understood. So the short and long of it is like, get this nice big story in Look Magazine, and then I get it in Perry Match, and Marilyn kind of liked it, you know, and uh, so I get a phone call, she's doing The Misfits, and uh, uh, would you like to cover it? And I said, well, I'd love to, but I got this assignment, this assignment, so I turned down the second job with Marilyn Monroe, and Perry Match calls me again and says, oh, she's making this great movie called Something's Got to Give with Dean Martin and Sid Charisse and everything. Larry, you got to go cover that for Perry Match. So I go out, and what we did in those days is you'd read the script, and you would decide which scenes in the film would have the best chance of having exciting pictures. Hmm. I mean, if two people are sitting having coffee, you know, that's not an exciting picture. 
But, you know, if one is chasing the other, that might be more of an exciting picture, <laughs> throwing the coffee cup at each other. <laughs> sure. So the short and long of Maryland is there. And you may have heard this story before because I've written it, obviously. And <laughs> her press agent, Pat Newcomb, is over by the window at her home. And she says, Larry, you know, there's a scene with Dean Martin where I'm supposed to be wearing this flesh-colored bathing suit. And he's up on the balcony. I'm supposed to be tantalizing him. And so what would happen if I jumped in the swimming pool with that bathing suit on? You'd get some good pictures. I said, yeah, him. She says, but what would happen if I came out of the the swimming pool without the bathing suit? (laughs) And I said, because you have to remember, I already know her for two and a half years. And I said to her... And you were 26 years old around 24, 25, right (laughs) I photographed the first, I was 23. So I said, the problem is, Marilyn, we really have a big problem. What's the problem? I want to be on the cover of all the magazines. I don't want to see Liz Taylor in any magazine when I'm on the cover. She can have her affair with Richard Burton, but (laughs) I've got my birthday suit. And I said, but there's a problem, Marilyn. What's the problem? You're already famous. Now you're going to make me famous. (laughs) And she looks at me and she says, don't be so cocky, Larry. I can fire you in two seconds. (laughs) Of course, she didn't fire me. But that shows how you can have a relationship, you see, which you can, you know, tease each other and, and... you know, sadly, I, I I made these pictures of her. I wasn't the only photographer in the last two months of her life that photographed her. George Barris did, a wonderful guy, photographed her on the beach. And Bert Stern did a layout for Vogue magazine in the Beverly Hills Hotel. Uh, but, you know, I did these, what we would call nudes or semi-nudes, the first nudes she did in like 15 or 20 years. And they were on the cover of every single magazine in the world. Life, Perry Match, Der Stern, you name it. Mm-hmm. And of course, I made a condition that Liz Taylor couldn't be in the same issue with Richard, <laughs> with Richard Burton. <laughs> and of course, that ingratiated me even more to her. And we were planning another shoot. I was out at her house. You know, she had just turned 36. And I was going to Palm Springs to the Ocotello Lodge with my wife. And... And she had this idea where she'd have this beautiful mink shawl in the front, white, etc. But I'd have two cameras, one shooting her front and one shooting from behind with seamless paper. And she'd be bare ass on the backside. <laughs> and that would be the front of the magazine cover and the back of the magazine cover. <laughs> and we were discussing this. And, you know, and she got a little upset at one point and said, you know, all they care about is my body. Nobody accepts me as an actress, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I was more quiet that day, and I was there till maybe 11, 12, 1 o'clock, I don't know. And I went to Palm Springs, and I get a phone call. It's 5 in the morning from Billy Woodfield, a friend of mine. Marilyn's dead. I thought he was joking. Yeah. I hung up the phone on him. Mm. Phone rings again. Marilyn's dead. You better come back, Larry. And of course, you know, I turned to my wife and so forth, and we drove back. And I drove to the house and got to the house just at the time some people were leaving. And you know, it was um, not a chaotic scene like the paparazzi. You see, mm. maybe six photographers, maybe. 
10 people from the press. Uh, and then, you know, I made that iconic picture of Joe DiMaggio and his son at the funeral, which has been used in Double Page in Life. Of but, course, of yeah, course. <laughs> but the, the, the thing is, Marilyn was in 62, you know. And quite honestly, I went back to shooting some tennis. And I was supposed to shoot the Davis Cup in uh, December in, uh, I think it was Brisbane, Australia. But before that, there was a big news story that No Damn Fu had been assassinated by the CIA in Vietnam and the dragon lady, his sister, who ran the country kind of, was staying at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel and all the world press was there, you know? And this is in late October. And everybody's trying to get to the seventh floor, eighth floor, ninth floor, wherever she was. And nobody can get there. The elevators are locked up. And so I, uh, I go home and I get a bag of clothes and everything and put a couple of cameras in with the clothes, call the Beverly Wilshire Hotel and say, I need a reservation for Lawrence Schiller. He's just arrived from New York, et cetera, et cetera. No credit cards in those days, you know, and uh, et cetera. So I pull up to the hotel, go to the gate, Mr. Schiller, here's my identification. Yes, we have a room for you, boom, boom, boom. It's on the ninth floor. You know, you're not allowed to be on the seventh floor, Mr. Schiller. I said, that's fine. I go up to the ninth floor. And, of course, the first thing I do is I walk down the fire stairwell from the ninth to the seventh, <laughs> which had not been blocked. I was lucky. And I walk in, and I, I knock on Madame New's window door. And Bill Ellisgue of the CIA answers the door. And the short and long of that story is that I got the exclusive story from her. I flew back to Rome with her. There's a long story about that. And uh, when that story was done, I came back. And then when I was taking a shower and Kennedy was assassinated, first thing that came to my mind was, wow, they hit him, the Vietnamese. They were able to get to him because he had ordered the CIA or somebody to kill, you know. Mm -hmm. And this was the big story. I mean, you have no idea how big Madame New was. You know, and of course, I flew to Dallas on the plane. We were told that he he had lost his life, and I got to the second floor of the Dallas police station about six minutes before the elevator opened, and there was Lee Harvey Oswald for the first time. And there's video footage of me, 60 millimeter, of lifting my Leicas and shooting the first pictures of Oswald. And then I made that... How did you get into the room? Well, you have to realize that there were no things like press passes in those days. There was no security. You know... Which was the problem. Of course. But, but I mean, you know, it, it was actually <laughs> other things that actually brought security to the country. Other events, not even that. But there was no press pass. I mean, Jack Ruby, who I have a dozen of my pictures, was walking around for three days and you could see the gun. Everybody was carrying guns. You know, Texas is a, yeah. a, a right, you know, in, mm -hmm. in those days it was even stronger. So nobody thought of, you know, the hallway was crowded and everything. So, and then Marina shows up with Marguerite Oswald, who I eventually interviewed. So the short and long of it is, you know, I'm now involved in another event, you know. And of course... I had met Bobby Kennedy years before at Peter Lawford's house and had been with Bobby in Maryland and things like that. And, uh, 
and I wrote about that at Vanity Fair at one point. Uh, so I started to shoot Bobby because he knew me. He knew other people. Bill Epridge, don't get me wrong, I wasn't the only one, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and photographed him all the way up to 1968 when he was, you know, assassinated, leaving the same place in the Ambassador Hotel that I had photographed Nixon, the same podium, it hadn't even changed in those nine years, Hmm. the same wooden podium, and his last moments before going into the kitchen were behind that moat, and I never went into the kitchen following him because, quite honestly, I had the Nixon picture in my mind, and I wanted to make Bobby Kennedy's picture exactly like the Nixon picture with that 180 millimeter lens. <laughs> so the short and long of it is, you win some and you lose some. But the, the thing <laughs> I think is, you won more than lose. Yeah. But you know that was the beginning of the wild, wild west. I mean, you don't realize that in the 60s, America had five assassinations: JFK, mm-hmm. Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. who had photographed Bobby Kennedy, Malcolm X. You know, mm-hmm. all of these mega evers. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, those were the, the the leaders of important issues in America that needed to be discussed, that were being discussed, and all of a sudden, and none of these assassinations are connected. It isn't as if America's getting too liberal or America, you know. Timothy Leary and Laura Huxley, Aldous Huxley's wife, dropping acid. You've got Woodstock in the 60s. At the same time, you've got Vietnam. Mm. You know? Yeah, it was a big uh, one. You know, the big one, Martin Luther King leaves the civil rights movement and goes, uh, you know, and condemns Vietnam. You know, black guys are going and giving their lives and coming back and they can't even get a job. Mm-hmm. You know, Martin Luther King really was sticking his neck out. And... Uh, uh, they were really important issues. So by the end of the 60s, you know, I photographed Streisand, Clint Eastwood, Paul Newman, and I got tired of photography, to be very frank with you. And Paul Newman gave me my chance in a, in a film called Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid to direct part of the film. I had done five movies with him. Really? And direct? It, yeah. And, you know, I... I knew I had, magazines were going out of business because advertising was going to television. Mm. So I knew I had to walk across the street to a new profession, but I didn't know how long a walk it was going to be. So I decided, not knowing anything about directing, nothing about film, nothing about movies, Paul Newman gives me my chance, and I did what was known as a still montage in the center of the film when they go from the west of Bolivia, and which was... An extraordinary thing because a storyline was changed with still pictures, not with dramatic dialogue or this and that. And then the next thing is Barry Gordy and Bob Evans calls me to edit and direct new parts of Lady Sings the Blues. So before I know it, I take all my cameras to Hollywood Collateral Loan and I hawk them for $500, <laughs> maybe $20,000 oh worth of cameras. So, I, so you've pawned all your cameras. For $500. You know why? No. Two things. I didn't have to carry the insurance anymore because Hollywood Collateral Loan has to carry the insurance and everything they hold. And number two, if I cut the umbilical cord, you see, then I'm going to become a filmmaker. Hmm. So I went out and I made a couple documentaries. And of course, the first one... 
I made with Dennis Hopper called The American Dreamer and Extraordinary. And the second mm -hmm. one, I win an Oscar for, you know, The Man Who Skied Down Everest. But I lost all my money financing my own documentaries. I didn't understand the movie oh, business. No. Every penny that we had had, every penny we had saved. You put it to Everything I put into the two documentaries. And Kit Carson also raised some money. A wonderful filmmaker. So, you know, before you said you learned from your dad. Yeah. That you needed to look at things from, from other people's perspective. Right, yeah. But when you made these movies, did you do that? Did you think, okay, this is going to be a moneymaker? People are going to line up to see no, this? No, no, because I, so, was, so, I was... So were you making these movies for you? Well, no, I was... I was number one, I didn't know anything about making. <laughs> I'm dyslexic. I can't even read well. I can't spell well. I'm very serious about this. Okay. Because later on, I hire some of the greatest writers in the world to write books based on my experiences. Norman Mailer and people like that, you know. Uh... So the short and long of it is I started to make films, dramatic films, narrative films, about stories that I had done as a magazine photographer. And I didn't go towards history. I didn't go towards fiction. I went to making films about something that I had either been a little bit involved in or knew more than anybody else. And I started making true life films for television. And that true life films for television is what the ratings were all about. You see? And, you know, uh, and I was very fortunate. There were two things in my mind. Don't worry about making money, Larry. Get the best cinematographer in the world. Okay? And the best writer in the world. Even if you have to give up all your fees. Because you got to have a good film. That's going to get you the next job. So, lo and behold, believe it or not, Robert Anderson, a playwright, Tony Owen Morning, playwright, never sang for my father, Sand Pebbles, likes one of my ideas and says, I'm going to write the screenplay. Another great screenwriter likes one of my ideas, and their agent says, yes, they'll write the screenplay. So I had some good screenplays. And, you know, along that road, the 10th anniversary of Marilyn comes up, her passing in 72. Mm -hmm. And even though the, my last photography was the fight in Manila, Ollie and uh, <laughs> Rachel, 76. Uh, what happens is that there's the short and long of this, the whole thing in, in, in 72, is I put together a book of the world's, 24 of the world's greatest photographers who photographed Marilyn Monroe. I get Richard Avedon, Bert Stern, Milton Green, you know, we're all like a, a club, okay? <laughs> Tenth anniversary. Nobody ever thought about doing a big picture book. Who's going to write the text? So I said to the publisher, oh, we got this great magazine writer. and this great." I said, no, 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 no. Marilyn was controversial. The writer has to be controversial. Who do you want, Larry? I want either Gloria Steinem or Norman Mailer. All I knew was Norman Mailer was... Controversial. All I knew with women's movement, Gloria Steinem was controversial. I didn't. You think I'd ever read Norman Mailer at that point? <laughs> Being honest with you, no. I knew Joan Didion because she worked at Life, and maybe I read her column. I'm not trying to demean Mr. Mailer. You know, who mm -hmm. he and I wind up 35 years in business together, hmm. and my closest friend. I run the Norman Mailer Center. I was his literary executor for a while. So I hired Norman Mailer to write 15,000 words. Publisher gives me $50,000 to give him. 
He doesn't write 15,000 words. He writes 95,000 words. <laughs> I now have a full biography. Okay. So did he, did he ask for more money? No. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because he had a third of the profits. I see. The photographers had a third, I had a third, and so forth. And so I started to realize that I could hire the greatest writers in the world, you see? So then I do all these interviews on Lenny Bruce, the humorous and satires, and I, I take, move Honey Bruce into my house for six weeks. My wife didn't like that very well. <laughs> and I hired Albert Goldman to write, ladies and gentlemen, Lenny Bruce. Becomes a Broadway play, becomes a film with Dustin Hoffman. So it starts me on a whole new thing in life which I'm not taking pictures anymore, but I'm coming up with ideas. In 1976, I read an article about a killer in Utah who convinced his girlfriend that they should both overdose at the same time. But what was interesting about the article was when she was found unconscious, her two children were sleeping by the bed. She didn't even take the children to her mother or anybody. So I said to myself, is this the definition of evil? Could this man, Gary Gilmore, have convinced this girl? You know, this was like, so I get on an airplane and I go to Utah. Well, the end result is I spend a year and a half interviewing 150 people, buying rights to the story, and I eventually hire Norman Mailer to write the book. I go out and I get a half a million dollars from a publisher. I give the whole half a million to Norman, 50-50 partners. And... You know, he writes an incredible book and wins the Pulitzer and Tommy Lee Jones stars in the movie <laughs> and that I produce and direct. So I started doing, Tom Wolfe and I worked together on Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. Uh, Gay Talese I knew, <laughs> you see. So we're all from the second <laughs> half of the 20th century. So when I look at journalism now, which is in a 50-yard dash, not a 100-yard dash, it's <laughs> like the Melrose games, 50 yards, how fast can you get on... Instagram, how fast can you get your tweet out? Mm -hmm. It's a whole different, different, world. different world. And the young kids that are growing up are learning to communicate differently. And as I said to my granddaughter, who's a photographer, and she travels around the world, she's 18, 19 years old, I said, do you realize that 20 years from now, it's not going to be anything like it is today? You know, it isn't like you go from film to digital. I mean, you're going, the iPhone has as good a lens mm -hmm. as any Leica had in the 30s and 40s. Right. You see? So the short and long of it is, technology is moving so fast. Nobody knows where we're going to be. And also, uh, the short and long of it, journalism is, is a whole different world. You know, and that's good because it's evolution. It's an evolutionary process. Don't cry over the fact that their newspapers are not what they used to be. Don't cry over the fact that Time Magazine's now not even 96 pages. Because it still has its place editorially, mm -hmm. but there are new forms of communication that reach the audience the way they want to be reached. Mm -hmm. Not the way we reached it 60 years ago. So now I have this exhibit in New Hope at the uh, uh, Gallery de Artists on uh, uh, Bridge Street. And 
I bought a house out here on uh, Pineville Road near uh, Pineville Tavern, which I love to go eat there. <laughs> and uh, uh, he, he makes me fruit salad, which he never had on the menu. <laughs> and somebody said, you know, what are you going to do this summer, Larry? And I said, well, I don't know. I'm working on some archives. Oh, why don't you have an exhibit? And I said, well, yeah, i got to add another bathroom to the house. Or, <laughs> you know, maybe. So this gallery was nice enough and kind enough to say, why don't we have an exhibit in August? And we, we took out all my pictures of Marilyn uh, from one wall, and we took out uh, Clint Eastwood and Paul Newman, a great pub of Newman and Redford playing ping pong. I mean, it's a fabulous picture. And uh, uh, Barbara Streisand, and you know, mm -hmm. kind of things. So we made some posters so people that can't afford to buy a vintage print can mm -hmm. still buy a poster, you know, signed. And I've just been having fun. i got to tell you, I'm wearing the shorts, which I could never do in New York. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, my wife says I should change my T-shirt at least every two days. <laughs> you know? Uh, and I'm just having fun, to be very frank with you. That's you know, wonderful. I'm, you know, before you said when you were... When you were, you know, a photographer, you, you developed relationships with people. Sure. And, and you got to know Lenny Bruce. You've known any number of people. And unfortunately, some of them come came to a premature end. You know, or, you know were, did some of those people, did those losses, did, you know, which loss impacted you the most? as far as the people you knew and the people Well, there's no question Norman Mailer's loss did because I may get a little emotional. I'm sorry. It's okay. I apologize. No. He was such a brilliant intellectual. Mm -hmm. And I'm anything but that. Okay. <laughs> you know, I can't even spell half the words that I say. Okay? Mm -hmm. And he and I worked together on five books bestsellers you know I would go out and do the interviews and research and uh, and he would write the books and it was all his words not mine you know and I remember uh, once Norman called me and he says Larry you've been at it for a year I got all the transcripts all the interviews it's enough it's enough I got enough for two books and I said Norman you still don't have the whole story you see and he said all right I'll give you another month so <laughs> probably impact me the most. And then when he passed on, I learned a lot watching him leave us in the hospital on how hospitals deal with uh, certain illnesses. And uh, uh, the short and long of it is I started the Norman Mailer Center in his home in Provincetown, in which for the first 10 years we gave out $50,000 worth of scholarships to high school writers wow. every year and teachers not for teaching but for writing we gave out the Mailer Prize to uh, Nobel laureates and everything and I'm very proud I was able to carry on you know Mailer's legacy so he impacted me more than anybody else in a way that I can't even explain amazing amazing I think uh You've you've far ex far uh, went beyond the uh, intellectual thing, you know. Like it, you just prove that intellect is goes so far.
but your experience has just taken it so much further. Well, I have a saying, you got to get off the wall and come down in the gutter with the rest of the sitters if you're going to live an interesting life. <laughs> that's right. If you're going to live an interesting life, that's what you should do. We are at the end of this wonderful show. We, we right. could have two more hours of this. Okay. I would just be... And I hope maybe we can get you back, huh? Yeah, we can talk about movies next time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so happy that well, you Well, my came. pleasure. This is my first radio show here, and it's kind of exciting. So yeah, we've got to do it again, man. Good. It's so My good. pleasure. It's been so wonderful, you, you sharing this. Good. I, I just could have listened forever, right? Absolutely. It's, it's nobody you didn't know. Did oh, you meet no. Jesus along the way? <laughs> Moses or uh, no, 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 Buddha, no. something like that? No, no. I, met, I met a lot of it. On, on drop-off said to me, I don't trust you, but I'm willing to gamble with you. And I asked Gorbachev what he thought of my film, Peter the Great. Oh, my gosh. He said, there's nothing, there's nothing we're ashamed of. <laughs> Great political statement. Yeah. Uh, with that. On that note. On that note, um, everyone, uh, thank you for listening. This will be played five o'clock for the whole week and um, come back next week and uh, peace to you. <laughs>